0: If you'll take your Bibles, and if you don't have a Bible, there's a should be a pew Bible in the chair in front of you. I uh, invite you to take that and turn to Ezra chapter 5. Ezra chapter 5. In the pew Bible, it's down on page 382. I have in the bulletin that I'm going to cover Ezra chapter 5 and 6. That was... Uh, uh, the the failed zeal of a preacher. <laughs> uh, we're just going to look at Ezra 5 today. Um, now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Idu prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel and Jeshua the son of Zod- Zod- Zosh- Josedach arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem and the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. At the same time, Tatanai, the governor of the providence beyond the river, and Shetharbozani, and their associates came to them and spoke to them thus, who gave you a degree, decree to build this house and to finish this structure? They also asked them this, what are the names of the men who are building this building? But the eye of their God was on the elders of Jews, and they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius, and then be answered, and an answer be returned by letter concerning it. This is a copy of the letter that Tatanai, the governor of the Providence beyond the river, and Shethar Bozani and his associates, the governors who were in the Providence beyond the river, sent to Darius the king. They sent him a report in which was written as follows To Darius the king, all peace. Be it known to the king that we went to the providence of Judah, to the house of the great God. It is being built with huge stones and timbers is laid in the walls. This goes on diligently and prospers in their hands. Then we asked those elders and spoke to them thus: Who have you a decree to, uh, Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? We also asked them their names for your information that we might write down the names of their leaders. And this was their reply to us. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth, and we are rebuilding the house that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished. But because our fathers had angered the God in heaven, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldeans, who destroyed this house and carried away the people to Babylon, Babylonia. However, in the first year of Cyrus, the king of Babylon, Cyrus the king made a decree that this house of God should be rebuilt. And the gold and the silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple, that was in Jerusalem and brought into the temple of Babylon. These Cyrus the king took out of the temple of Babylon and they were delivered to one whose name was Sheshavar, whom he had made made governor. And he said to him, Take these vessels, go, and put them in the temple that is in Jerusalem, and let the house of God be rebuilt on its site. Then the Sheshavar came and, and laid the foundations of the house of God that is in Jerusalem, and from that time until now it has been in building, and it's not yet finished. Therefore, if it seems good to the king... Let search be made in the royal archives and there in Babylon to see whether a decree was issued to Cyrus the king for the rebuilding of this house of God in Jerusalem. And let the king send us his pleasure in this matter. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You can be seated. Let's pray. God, you are the great God. There is none like you. Oh, Lord, we are so excited this morning to, to be able to sit at your feet and to, to hear as you speak to us your word. Oh, Lord, sometimes in the Old Testament, the things that we read are confusing and, and very different than, than our day and time. But, Lord, we pray that you would give us ears to hear. I pray that you would help me to speak clearly. But Lord, we pray more than anything for your spirit to work on our hearts, to open our hearts to understand what your word says, God, that you might be glorified, that we as your people might be strengthened. And Lord, even that those who don't know you may come to faith in you as well. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, uh, we're going to back up a little bit. It's uh, been a couple weeks since we've been in Ezra. And uh, actually, Ezra chapters 4, 5, and 6 sort of all go together. They're sort of like pearls on a, on a necklace. They're all strung together, and they have to be kept together to really understand what it is that, that it's talking about. And so if you'll sort of flip back to, to chapter 4, uh, you might recall that I talked about how Ezra chapter 4, uh, I entitled the sermon, Facing Opposition. And it really is talking about how these former exiles had been opposed in their work of rebuilding the temple of God. And that uh, that opposition happened as as they were laying the foundation. But the writer Ezra, uh, the book of Ezra, uh, he wrote years later, he also added in other instances where God's people had been opposed. Uh, So, in verses 6 through verse 23, it's sort of a a parenthesis where Ezra is saying, oh yeah, that happened, you know, when the temple was being built, but also later on with these other kings, there was also opposition. And if you don't know that, then you're going to read chapter 4, and you're going to uh, hear the letter that was written to Artaxerxes, and you're going to read uh, verse 24, and you're going to say, oh... Actually, so that's why it stopped, because Artaxerxes said he needed to stop the work. But that's not actually true. Artaxerxes, uh, he reigned like almost 100 years after the events of the building of the temple. And so uh, actually, if we want to look at sort of the flow of chapter 4, uh, let, me, let me help you with that. If you look at uh, Ezra chapter 4, it says in verse 1, Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles we're building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel. They approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses. And they said to them, let us build with you. They said, let us come and let us build with you. Now that, that sounds great. It sounds fantastic. They want to they help. But what you have to understand is these people, most likely the people from the north, were, were people that were descendants of those people who were sort of shipped in to Judah after nebuchadnezzar destroyed jerusalem and the temple you see it was common in that day and time for the conquering king to take some of his people and bring them into the country that he conquered because what happens is then they intermarry with the local people and that makes it where the local people don't want to rebel nearly as much and so it's it's a great strategy but so what happened is is these people came in and they began to intermarry with the jews and stuff and some began to worship the Lord, but they also sort of brought the practices of, of, that they were raised with in terms of worshiping. So they did not necessarily worship God the way that he had prescribed. And so they were worshiping the Lord, uh, but not in a way that would honor the Lord. And Serubbabel and the leaders knew this. You know, uh, There was a sense in which these people were saying, we want to help you, but there would have had to been compromise you know, in order for that to happen, and Zerubbabel and the leaders were not willing to do that. It's a little bit like our culture today, right? You know, what's sort of the the ethos of our culture that we just need to all sort of get along? We need to sort of coexist. Let's all just worship Jesus. Actually, it even goes broader than that. We don't even have to worship Jesus. Let's just worship whatever God you worship, but let's just get along, and and that was sort of the, the ethos that was there as well. It doesn't mean we have to be so particular about what God wants. Well, of course, fortunately, God's people rejected that. And so uh, we read in verse 4 of chapter 4, then the people, that didn't work, couldn't get them to compromise. So the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribe counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius king of Persia. And so they used intimidation. They they sought to discourage the people. They sought to, to bring fear and confusion and even political pressure. And, and the people to the north had worn the Jews down until finally the end of the story is in verse 24. So actually the flow of Ezra 4 is verses 1 through 5 and the verse 24. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And so the rebuilding work stopped. Not a happy ending as you come to the end of chapter 4. Now, brothers and sisters, as we come to this text, you know, we don't build temples and, and all that kind of stuff today, but we understand opposition, do we not? Uh, be it externally or internally uh, we wrestle as Christians with those who oppose us we live in a, in a world that we live in, in a culture that's becoming increasingly hostile towards the church where the agendas that are being promoted out there are very contrary to the church where lines are being drawn and saying you need to do things this way it's no longer we need to coexist now you need to succumb to what I think is right is, is the culture in which we live and, and it's not only that external oppression and, and temptation that we can feel, but even internally as well as as, as Satan seeks to tempt us. It's, it is the struggle we sing of in that great hymn, The Church's One Foundation, where in stanza three, we re, we sing, though with a scornful wonder, men see her sore oppressed. They see the church sore oppressed. As God's children, we may be weak in the midst of temptations, both inwardly and and outwardly and we may be tempted to give up as the exiles did. I don't it, it doesn't it's not evident in the text, but as you begin to piece together the timeline, you realize that there's a span of 16 years between chapter 4 and chapter 5. The end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5 of Ezra. 16 years. Now, the oldest young people we have in our congregation is Callista and Christopher. Okay? And I think they're 14 or they're going to be 14 very soon and so if you take just a couple years before they were born from that time to today for all that period of time the people went without rebuilding the temple that's a long time that's a lot of things that have happened 16 years had gone by and and actually the opposition didn't seem to change in the minds of the exiles that, uh, the opposition that they faced had not changed. But what had changed between the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5 is God intervenes. God begins to move. God begins to act. He doesn't leave His people where they are. So that, that leaves us to ask this question. What does God do when His children struggle with spiritual motivation? What does God do when, when we, we as His children struggle to be motivated spiritually? What does God do in times of spiritual lethargy and decline? How does God respond to our struggles? How does He respond in those times of our lives that are sort of reflected in the Him, Come Thou, Fount of Many Blessings? And the third stanza, once again, that says, Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. How does God respond in those times? Well, God never leaves His children in their struggle with sin. He never leaves them in their the midst of their fears or their discouragements. It's in those times that God is faithful to bring His word to His people. Where He encourages His people to trust in His promises and then continue the work that God has given them to do. Now, in this case, It was the work of building the temple. But that's what the Lord does. He brings his word to his people. He does not leave us where we are. And we see that in verses 1 and 2. How God sent two prophets. Ezra chapter 5 verses 1 and 2. He sends two prophets to his people. To stir them up to begin rebuilding. And the two prophets are Haggai and Zechariah. Now they're considered two of the 12 minor prophets. And... What that means is it doesn't mean they're minor in the sense of they're less important. It just means they're shorter is all it means. Uh, but but as you look at the minor prophets, as you look at their writings, you, you understand their ministry to the exiles. And and we see in Ezra chapter 5 verse 2 that as a result of the ministry of the word through these two prophets that Zerubbabel and and Jeshua, uh, it says, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. Now, don't miss that at the end. That the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. You know, in those times of discouragement, in those times of oppression, in those times when we're tempted to give up, or maybe we have given up, and the Lord begins to work in our hearts, we don't just need... A Bible verse to get us started we need an infusion of the Word of God we need God's Word continually in our lives we need to know his promises and these prophets were right there with the people and so for the next four years from the time of the second year of the reign of Darius in 520 BC until the temple was completed in 516 God strengthens and he encourages his people in the midst of their time of great discouragement. Wow. God is so faithful, amen? The word of God comes from Yahweh's prophets and the people, upon hearing the promises Yahweh has made to them under the terms of the covenant, are once again motivated to do the Lord's work. But for 16 years, they have neglected God's work that he had given them to do. And so what God does is he sends a prophet. Now, uh, Zechariah and Haggai were very different kinds of prophets. You know, today there's many different kinds of preachers. Well, these men were very, very, very different. The things Zechariah spoke of were very lofty and high, as we'll we'll look at in just a minute. But Haggai was sort of a nuts-of-bolts kind of guy, just sort of say it as it is. Now, Haggai's prophecies... His whole book covers a period of only like four months. It's not a very long period of time. But in that, he gives four sermons. And and in that, he he says this. Actually, turn to Haggai, if you would. The book of Haggai, very short. Uh, The book of Haggai, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. It sort of gives us the introduction. It was in the second year of Darius the king. Uh, The word of the Lord came to Haggai. The prophet came to Zerubbabel and to Joshua who is also known as Jeshua and he says thus says the Lord of hosts these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord and then he goes on in verse 3 and he said then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins you see they were busy with their own houses while god's house is over here lying in a in a pile of rubble and 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 they were making the excuses for their inactivity for 16 years they were convinced themselves that they were justified in not completing the work of the temple because of the opposition that they had faced so instead the people became busy of building uh, extravagant homes with paneling. Now for us, we think paneling, that's not <laughs> extravagant. But that went out a long time ago, Pastor Rick, Did you not know that. But but uh, in this day and time, paneling was something you saw in royal dwellings. and So these were very nice house. Now there's nothing wrong in building a home in which to live. There's nothing wrong even with building nice homes in which to live. There is everything wrong though with neglecting to build the house of God, especially since that is the reason why God stirred the heart of Cyrus to return the people to the land. That's what God had called them to do. So when Haggai and Zechariah began prophesying against the spiritual apathy, which quickly set in after the Jews returned home, Jeshua and Zerubbabel stepped up and they began to lead the people and the work on the temple started once again. Praise be to God. It's so good to see how God confronts His people and to see them respond in faith and to repent of their sin, to turn away from their sin and walk in obedience to the Lord. So the work starts. But, but, no sooner did the work start than the people of the land once again noticed and they wanted to stop it. Uh, Ezra recounts how two local officials, Tetanai and Shethar Bosani, who were part of the Persian governmental oversight over the area, they suddenly showed up and they began to ask what is going on. You know, I mean, nothing had been going on for 16 years and now all of a sudden the Jews are busy again. And so that would catch the attention of the officials to say, what's happening? Uh, Tetanai and, and the man who presumably was his subordinate Setharbo and I would—they would have been based in Damascus, uh, which is modern-day Syria—and they were responsible for overseeing all the political matters uh, in this region of, of the country. And uh, you know, the other thing I think that's helpful to understand is that during Darius's reign, revolts were not uncommon. There were a number of times in which people <coughs> were seeking to overthrow him. So as this rebuilding begins. It, it raises suspicion amongst the Persian officials. Do the Jews have permission from Cyrus to rebuild this temple as, as they claim? And and we know that, that um, even in Egypt, there were uh, rebellions, even to the southwest of here. And so that would have caused great concerns. And so it's only natural that Tat and I would question the Jewish officials and the purpose for the building project. So look at verse 3. Uh, he comes along with his sidekick to the Jews and he says who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure they also asked them what are the names of the men who are building the building now this is sort of the Aramaic equivalent of where's your papers (laughs) you know if you were in communist Russia you would appreciate this you know you were being watched in everything that you did and as you traveled you had to have travel papers and things and it was sort of like that so you know can you give proof that you are who you say you are and you're spoke that you're doing what you're supposed to be doing but evidently Tatnai must have been satisfied with the answer that he received from the leaders because he didn't order them to stop the work now Ezra though is very clear that while this appeared to be Tatnai's uh, decision it really, as we see in verse 5, was the Lord's decision. We read, But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius, and then an answer would be returned by letter concerning that. Now, that thats we don't oftentimes talk about the eye of the Lord, but Scripture does. The Bible uses that term quite often. Let me just read a, a couple of uh, passages from the psalm psalm 33:18 Psalm 33:18 and 19 says behold the eye of the lord is on those who fear him on those who hope in his steadfast love that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine god is watching his people he knows what is going on uh, Psalm 34:15 Psalm 34 15 The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears towards their cry. God knows what's going on in the midst of his people. And when we look to our covenant God for mercy we can be assured that his eye will be upon us for Christ's sake because of what Christ has done. Well the exiles knew that God was present with them through the preaching of the word. God spoke into their situation God confronted them in their sin. God laid out before them His covenant promises. He was speaking and so they knew that God was there with them. And no doubt had God's word not come to His people and their leaders through Haggai and Zechariah, then the discouragement and fear that they had felt previously in chapter 4 would have likely again uh, become a dark cloud over them and they would have fallen into discouragement and, and to fear. And the rebuilding efforts would once again have been halted. But instead, the thing that's different between chapter 4 and chapter 5 is God is speaking to His people. God is speaking to His people. He's bringing His word. He's bringing His promises to them. Now, Ezra was a priest with access to the temple archives, and so he's now writing chapter 5 80 years after the fact, Okay? And so he has access to all the documents and stuff, and so he includes them, including the original letter that was written to, to Darius. And uh, I'm not going to reread that. We've already read that once. But if you look at verses 11 through 16, when Tat and I and Shesthar the uh, the Israelite uh, report what the Israelites are doing, they also give Israel's responses, the leaders' responses, where the Jews confess their faith of God and they acknowledge their sin. Look at verse 12. The, the people describe themselves this way. They say, We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth. The Jewish leaders confessed that Yahweh had taken their land and now returned that land to them because our fathers had angered the God of heaven, they said. And, and this implies that the ultimately this is not Darius' land to give to them, but it's Yahweh's land. And, and that's grounded in the promise that was given to Abraham. And so they continued the work with great confidence that God is the one that's in control. So the reality is that Israel now lives with the consequences of being expelled from the land while the, the kings who now possess the land, first the Babylonians and then the Persians, uh, do so at God's pleasure. Because it is God's will that they do that. And, and God will... Uh, Um, direct the purposes and and the things that he wants to come about. We'll see that more as we look at chapter 6. But the earth is the Lord's and he determines who lives where and why. Now, as I said, it may be worth noting that the prophets Haggai and Zechariah were active during this period. They were preaching continually to God's people to encourage them. And it was this prophetic word that came which stirred the hearts of the people to have such faith. We we looked at Zechariah or uh, Haggai a little bit. Look at Zechariah if you would. Turn to the book of Zechariah, uh, chapter one. Um, there's a, a lot that we could look at. Just even in the first seven chapters that sort of deal with this time, but we don't have the time to do that. But as uh, for Zechariah, he was a priest and a, a, a member of a well-known family who had returned to Jerusalem with the exiles in Babylon. But unlike Haggai's prophecy, Zechariah's prophecy contains a series of what's known as night visions and apocalyptic images. As I, as I read this uh, from chapter one, verses eight through 17, you're gonna think I'm reading from the book of Revelation. It's, it's the same kind of literature that's, that's written in one sense. And he said, I saw in the night, uh, this is uh, Zechariah eight. I saw in the night and behold, a man riding on a red horse, He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. Then I said, What are these, my lord? The angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which you have been angry these 70 years? That would have been a reference to the exile. And the Lord answered graciously in comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me Said to me, "Cry out! Thus says the Lord of hosts: I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion." You know, brothers and sisters. For those of you that were here last week, you know, we talked about uh, God the Father and His great love for His people. And you remember one of the points that we made in the sermon was just that God loves us so much, we just can't comprehend how much. Uh, And why? It's a mystery that God would set his love upon us. But here we see God's exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. He loves them. He he desires their their worship. And, And I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it there's a promise the temple will be completed declares the Lord of hosts and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem cry out again thus says the Lord of hosts my city shall again overflow with prosperity and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem you see through this vision of Zechariah the discouraged people of Israel are exhorted to turn to the Lord who they are reminded offers the um, orders the affairs of mankind and so will fulfill his promises and the horsemen on patrol in Zechariah's vision are the prophetic sign that God is watching over all things and even his people that he will pour out his mercy upon his downcast people despite their great discouragement even after the exile and of course the the people of Israel have broken covenant with God and then even after they had returned they had disobeyed the Lord by not building the temple because of the constant hassles from the people from the land and the possibility that the Persians would stop the work they just gave up so Zechariah tells them that Yahweh will deal with their enemies but the time has come for the former exiles to get to work in light of the covenant promises that God has made to his people. And so they did. They continued on that work. And, and we, we can look back at Haggai's other sermons as well. Uh, they weren't all sermons of rebuke like the first one. As a matter of fact, many of his other messages were messages of promise. Shortly after the people began building the temple, then there were those, remember, who complained because they said, Oh, this is just a dinky temple compared to Solomon's temple. And they were griping and they were complaining. While the young people were rejoicing, the old people were mourning. And and Haggai says in chapter 2, verse 3 and following, he goes, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. You see, he encourages his people that God's covenant promises are still true, even though they've been in exile, even though they face this opposition. God is faithful and he is continuing his work. And then he talks in Haggai 2, 6-9 about how God will be with his people in a greater way in the temple, not just in this temple built with hands, but most likely I think he's referring to the the heavenly temple. And uh, he even uh, says, uh, as he closes the book of Haggai, how God will make Zerubbabel a signet ring. Uh, here again, referring to the promise that God had made to David that he would always have a king from his family on the throne. And and while Zerubbabel was not the final king, uh, we know that Jesus Christ was God is fulfilling his promises. Now, brothers and sisters, I know that's a lot of information to go through, but I want us just to think about this a minute as we consider this account. We, we've seen the struggles faced by God's people in these difficult days, and And like them, we often are tempted in our present circumstances to only see with our eyes, are we not? You know, whenever we encounter circumstances that are weighty or difficult or challenging or trials, things that news maybe that we hear that causes us to be fearful or to worry, you know, it seems like all we can do is look at those things with our own understanding. And we sort of process those things, that we think about the, the what ifs well, what if this happens? You know, how will I handle this? And, and, our, and our vision can become very focused upon this horizontal level. And it's so easy for us to forget the promises of God. That God is at work up here in a much higher and a greater way to fulfill his covenant promises. And, and he has his king, King Jesus, in heaven. And God is still at work. And God keeps his covenant promises as he works through his church, as he works through his people. But it's easy for us to forget those promises as we look at the trials of our lives. And, and Ezra tells us that God's people knew that God was present with them. And he was speaking his word into their, his word into their lives, reminding them of his covenant promises. And we need to do the same, brothers and sisters. Who amongst us does not need to be strengthened in God's grace, right? All of us are are, are facing tr- struggles and trials and oppositions in our lives. And, and we as God's people are frequently tossed to and fro externally and internally by adversaries of the gospel and out of a sense of our own weakness. Uh, what we see in chapters 5 and 6 are... Or are, are sort of what we read in Ephesians 1:11, that God works all things according to the counsel of His will, and God has always and continues to keep His covenant and to carry out His will, and like I said, He does that through His church. Do you remember the words of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10? I know you know Ephesians 2:8 and 9, but verse 10 says, "For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus." Why? For good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see we, once we walked in trespasses and sins in which the devil had trapped us but now as his children we are to walk in the good works which God has eternally planned for us to do. You know I think it's so easy even as Christians for us to be so caught up in the day-to-day things of life. Even as we've read in 1 Corinthians 7, if you're married, you have all these responsibilities. You got a family to care for. You got all these things to do. You know, so Paul says it's better to be single. You know, you can just sort of focus on blessing the Lord and ministering in the name of the Lord. You know, that doesn't mean that married people can't minister in the name of the Lord, okay? But Paul just acknowledges that it can be tough. And so oftentimes I just wonder you know, how much we get caught up sort of in the day-to-day things that we're doing, and we sort of forget that God has saved each and every one of us who are his children so that we might do good works that would further God's work of keeping his covenant promises and uh, bringing in people into his kingdom and, and purifying, uh, perfecting his church. You see, in Christ, God uses His people to carry out His covenant promises. But life's not easy. But God is faithful, and He works all things according to the counsel of His will. And He does so by being present with His people and speaking His word to His people. You know, it struck me this week, you know, that God's plans are so uh, sure that He could write it down. Have you ever thought about that? He didn't put it in a tablet. He didn't put it in a word document where it could be changed and edited, you know, as time goes along. But God knows the beginning and he knows the end and all of the in-between. And he has written these things down, and they are so sure that he can put it in writing that we could stand upon these things. Brothers and sisters, God's word is all sufficient for wherever it is that you're living. By nature, we have a tendency to underestimate the power of God's spoken word. Even if even Think about it. All the things that we fear, all the things that we worry about, the things that keep us up at night that we think, oh, Lord, but what about this? And, you know, especially if you're an administrative person who's very organized, you're trying to think of all the different outcomes and the aspects, and that could just add to the worry and the fear and stuff. But but just think about it this way. Even if all those who oppose God would unite in defiance against Him... (coughs) one word from God would be more than enough to destroy them. Have you ever thought about that? And what does the Bible say? The nations rage, the kingdoms totter, he utters his voice, and the earth melts. That is the power of the word of our God. And so anything that may be before us, anything that we may have a tendency to be worried about, the things that we think that we have to figure out the things that are unknown in our lives that are sort of looming out there and we have no control over and they're constantly upon our minds we need to let those things go we need to trust those things to the lord because he could just breathe a breath and those things could dissipate go away today many forces come against the church And how easily God's people underestimate the Lord's word. How quickly we look to the world for modern methods that we can use to help the church's cause to succeed, to be successful. But how slow we are to trust in the simple power of God as he reminds us of what he promises in his word. You see, as he reminds us of his promises and and what he will do because he has said he will do it, Regardless of what our circumstances are and what we are tempted to think, God is faithful. If you're here today and you struggle with worry, if anxiety is always with you, you need God's Word. You need to focus upon His promises and and to rest upon Him. God strengthened His people to build the temple. Even after 16 years of neglect, they had become complacent because they were listening to the wrong voices. They were listening to the voices of fear. They were listening to the voices of discouragement. They were listening to the voices of political threat. What about you? I mean, just like the sirens of Greek mythology who lured sailors to their deaths, the sirens of the world are always singing, brothers and sisters. Uh, it, It never ends. There's always some song playing from the world you know, as you listen to the news, as you get on social media, as you talk to your friends, as you're around the water cooler at work, there's all these sirens, all these voices that are speaking uh, to you and informing you of things that would tempt you to worry and fret and to be disheartened and to give up on the work of the Lord. Some voice is always speaking, but the question is. To whose voice are you listening? Are you listening to the agendas of the world that sound so imposing and ready to consume you, or the Almighty Sovereign God who speaks, and it is? God sends His word, oftentimes through preachers, but it could be through through moms or through dads. It could be through the written word. But God sends His Word to rouse the sluggish and wake the dead. God is speaking to you today, right where you live. Right through whatever it is that you are dealing with. And the question is, are you listening? Do you believe that the promises that God has made are yes in Jesus Christ? Do you believe because Christ has come that they are definite? Because our Lord sits at the right hand of the Father today. To bring about all those promises as God has planned. Is your heart encouraged to do the work that God has called you to do? Like the former exiles, can you trust in Him through His promises, knowing that He is with you and His eyes are upon you? Let's bow our heads as we take just a, a few moments of, of silence. And I just want to encourage you to silently pray to the Lord in response to the word that He's given to us today. thank you that you have not only given us your word but you have given us your spirit that dwells within us as your your people oh father we pray that you would make us people who would listen that, that we would know the voice of our shepherd and so lord when we hear these other voices that are that are being sounded around us that we would recognize them for something other than our shepherd's voice and not listen That we would drown out those voices, Lord, and and seek your voice. To know your will, to to trust in you, to know that you are with us and you are guiding us and you are fulfilling your purposes. Oh God, we praise you that, that these Jews, even though the letter was sent to Darius and they had no clue what the outcome was going to be, their hearts were steadfast in you. They trusted in you and continued the work because they knew that you were faithful. Lord, give us such a heart uh, as we minister in your name. May you help us, Lord, not just as individuals, but even as a church, to not be dissuaded by the things that oppose us. But let us as one man walk in Christ, that we might behold the glory of our God as we see you work in a mighty and great way. We thank you and pray this in your name. Amen.